Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. it's always a good question to ask ourselves here at GBC and of ourselves individually, why do we exist? Because the reason why innervates and motivates everything that we do. It's important to understand what our mission is individually and as an organization. I think the Bible is pretty clear about what our role, both as individuals and as a church is, and that would be to make mature and equipped disciples of Christ. We see it in Matthew 25, where he says, go therefore to all nations and make disciples. That is the main verb in that uh, text right there. The teaching and the baptizing, those are secondary to that main verb, make disciples. Make disciples. And what does a disciple look like? What does it mean to be mature and equipped? There's lots of answers. There are people who will focus on, well, if somebody knows the Bible well, that must mean that they are mature. It could mean somebody who knows or prays for a very long time. That person might be mature. It might be somebody who is aged. We see someone with gray hair. Matt was talking about his beard. Me too. I shaved some of it down so it wouldn't be so obvious. But we look at them and we assume as well, because they have white hair, that they, in and of themselves, because of that, must be mature and equipped believers of the Lord. One of the most important aspects of being a mature and equipped believer is one of unity. The desire to be reconciled not only with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, but as a result of that, to be reconciled and unified with one another. You know, the world could use a little bit of unification, The world could use a little bit of peace. We're living in an era of division, the use of often unfair labels, intense disagreement, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better, does it? Sadly, Christians can be leading the charge in the rhetoric of the day toward those who don't believe in Christ or believe differently, especially those, um, especially that in the manner of engagement. The way we disagree matters, though. It does. The world is watching us, and how we disagree with one another is emblematic of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This should not be the case. We don't need to be adding more disunity to the world around us through a refusal to seek unity among ourselves. Now, Before I go any further, it's often uh, assumed that because the pastor is preaching on a specific topic, it must be a necessary topic within that community, okay? I'm not sending a message to us that somehow there's disunity in the ranks and we need to be unified. We're on Ephesians 4. This is what it talks about, so I'm going to talk about it as well. I think that God is doing something amazing in this church. 
that the Holy Spirit, as we sang today, it was obvious that God is in this place. When I hear people's witness about what they experienced at Grace Bible Church through you guys and through the feeling of the Spirit in their hearts, they knew that God is in this place, and we can give thanks to God for that. So today we're going to talk about unity in that it is an essential mark of Christian maturity. Unity. We have false notions about unity very frequently. Either on one side, we seek unity for unity's sake. And out of necessity, we compromise in lots of areas. Things that are deeply held, principles that are embedded within who we are and our heart. On the other hand, we can view unity as a potential threat or weakness and avoid it altogether. But for better or for worse, the world is watching us. And the way we conduct ourselves when we disagree with one another as followers of Christ says not only a lot about us, but probably more importantly, what it says about Christ. Because if we can't get along, why would we have any of the answers for a culture and a world that can't get along? So today we're in Ephesians 4. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. We're taking a turn in the book here. The first half, if you recall, of the book of Ephesians was a lot about what is happening behind the scenes in our spiritual life. What has God done, in fact, in reality? The second half of the book talks about, since this is true, this is how we should live. Hence the name, therefore. The first half of the book talks about why. The second half of the book talks about how. So turn with me. Chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to move a little bit quickly. There's a lot of area to cover here, but just let's talk about what the text says, and then we'll talk about how that applies to our life. Here it begins. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. I love Paul. You got to love Paul. Right out the gate, he starts, I'm going to give you some hard things to do, but I want to remind you where I am, okay? I'm in prison. I'm in prison not only on behalf of you, I'm in prison on behalf of the Lord. And as a result, anything I'm about to tell you cannot compare to me being in prison. So he's putting a little extra oomph on what it is he's asking them to do. I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's urging, he's begging, he's entreating is the idea of what he's saying, to walk in a manner. Walk in a manner. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for walk is halach. And halach has been used throughout the Old Testament, and now we see it here in the New, to mean the way we conduct ourselves, the way we walk in this world, the way that we behave towards one another, and the way that we serve God. He's saying, I'm asking that you would be obedient, to behave, to comport yourselves in a manner that is worthy of your calling. Now, if you read the first beginning of the book, you're going to say, man, are worthy of my calling. Well, I'm not worthy of my calling. In fact, it's the opposite. Because I'm not worthy, Christ had to come in and to save me. So what is it that Paul has in mind here? Paul is saying the word here, we see it, it means to be in accordance with. It means to walk in a manner congruent with. It says, because this is true in the background, then this is how you should live to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Axios is the word. Commensurate. The reality is, so our practice must 
be. You know, there is a truth out there. I've heard this said several times before, kind of a beautiful illustration is that there is a music to the universe. That music in and through the universe is the very voice of God. Not that the universe is God. Do not misunderstand me. What I'm saying is God as the creator of everything is speaking through his creation. It says it in Romans. And insofar as him doing that, he is beating a drum, as it were. There's a rhythm to God's will and to God's spirit. We've often heard the phrase, that person walks to the beat of his own drum. And here in America, especially, we elevate that. Oh, that's an individual. That is somebody who lives for himself and lives according to the way God created them or the way they choose to live, I should say. I believe that God is establishing a rhythm in the universe. We see the notes of that song written here in his book. We feel the notes of the music with the Holy Spirit within us. The true question is, is, Are you in step or are you out of step? Are you continually pulling away from your partner, the Holy Spirit, or are you stepping on his feet? Are you dancing a cha-cha while he's dancing a waltz? That's probably more like it for some of us. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling to walk in beat with God, to dance to the music of God. Our calling is a calling of grace. There is no doubt. God called us from a place of total darkness, alienation, and called us into his light. He says, walk in a worthy. He tells us how to do it. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So the first thing I want you to note out of this passage is the logical outcome of our salvation is unity with other believers. Unity. I was going to say the natural outcome, but this ain't natural. This is supernatural. When we live the way we want to live, disunity and discord occurs. Why? Because we're proud. The logical outcome is our unity with other believers believers. So what does this life look like? He says, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bear with one another. He's telling us how to bear with one another. First is humility. The word here actually means lowliness. It's interesting. When you talk about, when we see this word lowliness and we say, yeah, I can get behind that. It's hard. We admit I can get behind the idea of setting myself aside, of loving someone more than myself or loving at least in a manner like I love myself, but the word here has decidedly negative overtones to the culture to which it was written. In the Greco-Roman world, lowliness was not a positive attribute. This is why Christ was such a stumbling block to many in that day and to many in this day. They see someone who was weak and got taken advantage of. You mean he was despised and this is the person we glorify? Lowliness. In lowliness, we bear with one another. With gentleness, we bear with one another. Agreeability, that's the word, agreeableness. How do we interact with kindness and a desire to benefit the other person, to to not be the big show, but to interact with those who think differently than us, 
who believe differently, who live differently than us, and with patience. We bear with one another in love, eager to maintain, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This eager to maintain peace, this spuzzazzo, this is like running, okay? We see the word eager and we say, well, I'm, I'm um, conscientious, I really, really want this, but there is an idea attached to this word of haste. This says, I immediately go. I do what I can to be there first. I go out of my way in order to maintain peace, to keep peace. That word maintain, keep, protect, and we go first. If there's disunity, we seek to create unity. Where there's potential for disunity, we act proactively to protect that which God has granted us by grace. And we do this and maintain the bond of peace. When you look at this grammar, it's really interesting. In the world, we often say, well, everyone's got to agree. If everyone agrees, then we'll be unified. That's not what this book actually, or this word actually means. This is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying is, you are unified. You already are one body and one spirit, as we will read in just a second. And because that is true, because that reality exists among believers, it is now on us to walk in a manner commensurate with that truth. We often falsely believe that peace is the result of people getting along, but peace is the reason we should be getting along. If you remember a week ago or two, it's he is our peace. Christ is our peace. Not only between God and creator, but also between each other. Remember the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile is broken down. Christ breaks that wall down. He is our peace. The peace is an established spiritual reality. We are united, so we should act like it. Verse 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Our unity is not based on human conceptions of peace. It's based on the objective reality of the unity that exists because of Christ and what he has done. The division of Christendom is very often an excuse for those outside of it to dismiss it. I look at the denominations within Christianity and I wonder how much of that could be settled if we just majored on majors. Such fine distinctions in order to pull ourselves out to say, we know better. And left to ourselves, we find more and more reason to be separate and right and ununified. This doesn't seem to be what God is calling us to be seems clear. Because Christ is our peace, we are unified. Now let's act like it. Second point out of this text, the unity of the church is expressed through the diversity of gifts within it. It's easy for us to say, well, we're unified. It means everyone's got to be the same. It's like clones. We're not clones. 
nor should we be clones. It never was God's intent for us to be clones. God has given us specific gifts for the betterment of the body for his glory and for our good. We're moving into a place in the text that's a little bit difficult to interpret. It sort of comes out of left field, and as you're reading through, it seems to break the logic of the text. So I'm going to walk you through it, and we're going to see what we get on the other side. Seven, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I believe Paul is saying, what I'm asking you to do is hard, but God has given you grace. He says, and he's given you enough grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ's gift for us was infinite. Paul is saying you have everything you need, that his grace is sufficient for you to live the way that I'm calling you to live between one another. Verse eight, therefore it says, now this is out of left field. So I want you to do is I want you to look at verse seven at the end where it says in accordance to Christ's gift, Gift is the word that Paul is going to riff on now. He says, therefore, when he ascended on high, this is Jesus, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Oftentimes when you're reading the New Testament, you have to ask yourself, why do they select this particular passage in the Old Testament to talk about what it is they're saying? Sometimes it is one point that they're trying to pull out, but it's attached to a larger piece. And so we see this, he led captives or captivity free or captivity captive or a host of captives. This isn't necessarily the point that Paul is making. He's saying the gift. He gave gifts to men. He pulls it from Psalm 68, 18. When Christ ascended on high, he sent back the Holy Spirit. Today is the day that we commemorate that event, Pentecost. When that Holy Spirit came down, when the Holy Spirit came down and indwelled believers, he gave gifts to us that we would be useful to him, that we would be a blessing to one another. And each one of these gifts are different. And each one of these gifts, and when used properly, work together, but it doesn't always feel like it. We got the merciful encouragers talking to the prophetic leaders. And it's easy to say, to railroad the other and say their perspective is wrong. Yet when held in tension, in the bond of peace, which is created by Christ and for his glory, it becomes a collaboration. When the Spirit descended upon us, and dwelled in us as believers, the believer, us, we were graced with a gift. Verse 9. You may have a parenthesis, parentheses in your text. It's because this is a separate thought that Paul is having. And, he's, and in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. Paul's putting a little extra on, by the way, Jesus is God. Jesus preexisted everything. Jesus, did I say John or Paul? Paul is saying that. Paul is saying it. It says, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Some of you might know the Apostolic Creed where it says that Jesus died and descended into hell and three days later was raised. It's from this text. The problem is, is this text probably doesn't say that. Since the Apostolic Creed was written, Greek has developed in a, as a language in the understanding that people had of it. 
And the way this is written here, it probably means that Christ ascended, also descended to earth, the lower regions here, not hell. I don't hold super strongly on that. But just for those of you who wonder, this is where it is from. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. As an example of how Christ has gifted the church for the benefit of the church and for God's glory, it talks about several offices of those church, functions of people within it. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. These are sometimes referred to as the five-fold ministry. You look around, you're going to see this, the five-fold ministry. There are some who believe that these offices, except for pastors and teachers, have died away in the apostolic era. And this is an area of contention even today. I think this is the way it goes. This is how I understand it. Okay, is that the fivefold ministry as we see it in the New Testament does not mean that there are apostles like the apostles that existed then. Those who were sent specifically by God. We have apostled functions now. Two of them were up here presenting about what they are doing in Egypt and in Hong Kong this summer. Apostle means one who is sent. We see a basic analog today with missionaries. Okay. However, it's important to know there are people today who believe that the apostles or self-declared apostles or apostles who exist today by name, apostle, are a continuation of the spiritual heritage of Christ and therefore in themselves carry authority. Authority. What ends up happening is people begin to follow an apostle because of the belief that they hold authority as a direct descendant of Christ. And you can get off into left field like that. But we do have the apostolic function today. Missionaries. Prophets. Those who declare the truths of God. Warning and comforting. Preachers. Evangelists. Those who go to the lost and are especially gifted in bringing people to the Lord at the point of initial conversion. And then shepherds and teachers. A little side note, some of you might even have shepherds hyphen teachers as one person. I think that's probably the truth. And it's likely one office. This is what I'm called to do. A shepherd teacher. The purpose of these roles is to equip and nurture the rest of the church for service. God has gifted the church with these offices. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Too often it's easy to say, Pastors, pastor does it. There are a lot of churches that the pastor does everything. They say, after all, he's a pastor. He's a different class than the rest of us. The Bible teaches that we are a priesthood of believers. Do you believe that? Isn't that amazing? That you are a priest or a priestess of God and that you carry all of his rights and responsibilities. You are the one who is intended to do the work of ministry. All of you. The moment you receive the Lord and you are indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're endowed with a gift. You carry that gift in the authority of Christ because ultimately it is you, each of us, together, who does the work 
of ministry to build up the body, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Unity of the faith is not cloning. What unity of the faith is, is all eyes on Christ. This is my heart. This is why I am called. That each and every one of us would get a clearer vision of the love of Christ in our lives. That he would be magnified. And in doing so, we would be minimized. That his love for us would grow. And that our problems and circumstances would pale in comparison. Think about a life like that. I think about it all the time. I'm so sensitive to the things that are going on within me, sinful things, things I hate. If you're growing with the Lord, you should be feeling it too. All I want for you is Christ, that he would grow in your hearts and that you would be conformed into that image. Paul uses language about sort of being unsure until the growth of someone in Christ is formed in them. It's kind of like, I used to breed parrots. Not many of you know this is a, we're going to a deep cut here, okay? This is a B-side right here. You guys know that I, I'll say M, but was an addict. That means if one is great, a thousand is just getting started, okay? We bought a bird years ago, 25 years ago. I said, this bird is awesome. It was an African gray parrot. Thing talked, it loved you. It was just, it was like a person. It's like, oh, somebody's never gonna judge me. It's like, and then we taught him judgmental language and that went out the window. But anyway, so if this one parrot is great, what if we bought a pair that laid eggs? Then we could have more. And then what if we bought another pair of a different species and began basically a parrot mill? I'm not proud of it, okay? I had a problem. And so we bred these birds. Oftentimes, parrots will not sit properly on their eggs. So what we do is we take the eggs and we put them into, yes, an incubator. I literally had a neonatal incubator in my living room. You know the thing you put your hands in through and you work on them like that? And I cared for and loved these eggs. Made sure the temperature was right, the humidity inside there was right. Let's track how many days. I'm always glassing it to ensure proper development. I'm doing everything to nurture these eggs because the truth is there's no guarantee that this egg's going to come out. There's no guarantee this bird's going to be born. When I read Paul talk about that he worries until Christ is formed within the people to whom he writes, I get it. I get it. We all have friends and family who have made mention about their understanding of Christ. They've maybe even made something of a profession. I, I praise God for those moments. But I recognize that it's a tender time, that a lot can happen. So our job is to be praying for people like that until they come to the maturity, until Christ is formed in them. all eyes on Christ, an abiding and growing relationship with him, knowledge of the Son of God, and maturity in Christ. Until we are conforming and being conformed to his image. To his image. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 3.18. 
I'm going to preach on this later this summer, but I'm going to give you a sneak preview on this one. It says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who, has, who is the Spirit. When we trust on Christ and the Spirit dwells in us, the veil is removed. We behold him through the pages of Scripture, through the movement of the Spirit in our hearts, through our work among the community of believers, and we are changed. Are you struggling with sin and despair? Look at Jesus. Behold him with unveiled face and see who he is. And you will be changed into it. Struggling to change in your own power? Join the club. Look to Jesus. As we look upon Christ in his glory, the Spirit does something amazing in us. He changes us into that which we are fixed upon. The same principle is true in the reverse. If we're maintaining eyes on sin, on ourselves, on our circumstances, they continue to be transformed. We grow into those things. We keep our eyes focused on Christ. When believers are mature in the Lord, they possess several important characteristics. We're going to talk about this verse 14. There's some elements that we're looking for. 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. First, conviction. Yes, it's possible to hold conviction and zeal for unity at the same time. We're not swayed by new ideas. The Roman world was full of preachers who had a new way of doing things, a new philosophy, a new... We're not swayed. Infomercials, this new fad, new books, new authors, new diets. Have you ever listened to children debate about something? I mean, little kids. Children demand to be right. And they'll say some of the most ridiculous things in order to be right in a debate. That sounds like us sometimes. Immature Christians. We can know what we know in humility, holding fast to what is essential and allowing others the freedom to be wrong. The freedom to be wrong. The unity of faith says, I don't know about this new idea, but I do know Christ is Christ. And that Christ is the only way. All this other stuff, I'll hold it tentatively. We'll put a pin in it. What I do know, Christ crucified. He goes on to say, wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Discernment. Not only conviction, but discernment. Discerning. Discernment is the careful discrimination between truth and error because it can get really messy. Making difficult decisions in the face of many variables. We need the word, we need the spirit, and we need our brains. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, 
from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Finally, love. Our demonstration of truth and love is the way that we grow into Christ-likeness. This is not gushy love. This is not the type of love that humanity proposes or our culture proposes as the truest expression of acceptance and personal connection. This love that grows us together in Christ and towards Christ is the love that Paul is speaking about. So what can we do then? How do we, how do we apply these truths to our lives? First is we consider our peace in Christ. We reckon with the fact that Christ has made us unified And so therefore we live like it. My circumstances are swirling. I'm angry at this person. Where does my mind go? Not to the circumstance, to Christ. No, this is the truth. So I'm going to live like it. Secondly, major on the majors. Major on the majors. We often want to nitpick things to be especially the way we want in order to make ourselves feel better. Major on the majors. Augustine said, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity. Hold fast to which is good. Christ crucified. Allow others the liberty to believe what they want, but do it all in love. Embrace diversity, not just racially, but of thought, of perspective. There's strength in this. Seek to understand others. Stephen Covey said, listen with an intent to understand not the intent to reply. Avoid pigeonholing people. Oh, they hold to this one idea. Therefore, they must be this. Remember, we talked about the word of presupposition, believing that we can make a judgment based on limited evidence. People are wonderfully complex. God has made this church so that we have wonderful diversity, so that we can draw on the strengths of that. Let's embrace that. But above everything, keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on the one who has unified us. But we don't, do we? We often seek disunity. We certainly don't run towards unity. Why? Well, the most obvious answer is pride. John Stott said, Pride lurks behind all discord, while the greatest single secret to concord, agreement, unity, is humility. Humility. You have a desire to be correct or difficulty admitting error, unrealistic evaluation of the importance of issues. Why? Because we want what we want when we want it in the way we want it in the timeline we want it. This is the root of sin in the heart of a sinner. Self-righteousness, not only pride, self-righteousness. A refusal to let people be wrong. Feelings of unfairness when we see others sin and we don't get to. Have you ever thought about that? It's like, oh, I wish I could do that, so I'm going to rail on them. Because we have a jealous heart. The sin in us wishes that we could do what they do. But our life has been called to Christ where our eyes must be, not upon their behavior, upon their choices or upon their life. That road is death and we've been called out of death to life. Finally, fear. What'll happen if I 
let this thing I believe is a little bit off go unanswered. We don't need to be snipers shooting down every single little bit of in error we find or error we find. We don't have to maintain control because the truth is, is we do not have it. It's an illusion in case you haven't figured it out. Your control is an illusion. All these, pride, self-righteousness, and fear that motivates our sin of disunity is answered by the life and death of Christ. Looking at Christ, how did he live? What did he do by dying? Breaking down the wall of division. You're afraid of what might happen? Christ can control things. Christ has it. Let him superintend your world and your life and the life around you. Self-righteousness, look to him. Remember where you came from. It was by grace that you are saved. Selfishness, the root of it all. At every turn, rip it out. Look to Christ. Give me the strength. Pull it out. It'll sprout again. It's a lifelong process. So what do we do when we live this message out? How can I carry this message? (laughs) We carry it by living it. We carry it by living it. We set the example for others because people are watching. People are watching us, both inside and outside of the church. Seek friendships with people who are different than you. Seek friendships with people of different races sociological positions, theologies, perspectives, every and everything. There's value in learning and listening and understanding others even when we disagree. It is only then that we can really see what's going on in their heart and be able to apply the gospel in a way that is meaningful. I went to a local college, a community college, uh, when I first started going back to school to an ethics class. It was very difficult for me. And I had to learn a lot about how to interact with people who believed. I was the middle-aged, white, male, evangelical Christian in the ethics class. So namely, everything that was wrong with the world was me in the left row, second seat back. It was a 13-week class. It was a girl who sat next to me who was an avowed communist. There were people of varying races and genders and everything in between. And I had so much fun by the end of the time. I began to see people instead of principles. I began to see hearts instead of perspectives. But I needed to hear their perspective to get to their heart. Seeking out people and friendships. Give people the grace that was extended to you and give them the freedom to be wrong. Bear with one another in love. Finally, pray for unity in the church then actively seek it wherever you go. When there's disagreement, seek to make peace and point people to the only thing that matters in the end. Jesus Christ. 
Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.